0: Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 84. Before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you to supply what we lack. We look to you for everything. We look to you this morning to open your word, to help us to see you, to understand you, to long for you and delight in you, to seek you and pursue you, that we might be satisfied in you. Delighted in you, overcome with joy in you, and overflowing with life. Because we've come into your presence and known the goodness. Father, have mercy and help us in every way. Amen. You know, in Psalm 84, as we're going to see the psalmist reveals to us how incredibly good it is to be with God in his temple, in his presence, to know his presence and power with his people. And the psalmist said clearly, obviously, as we will see, the psalmist experienced God in a way that was obviously marvelous, and he wanted more. He wasn't satisfied with the wants, he just wanted more. He hungered and thirsted after God. And you know, often this is the case. When we taste something that's really good, it's it's hard to go back to the old way, isn't it? So many things. I remember for years, uh, I didn't like pork chops. And I didn't like pork chops because I thought they were dry. I thought they were somewhat tasteless. and And the reason for this is because when you really, really cook pork chops, they become dry and tasteless if you cook. But for the longest time, I, there was a fear, a fear that pork is going to get you sick unless you just cook the, the death out of it. And so that's how we did it. But until we discovered one day that uh, you know people do actually cook them less um, to that degree. And, and then we found out when we got this Traeger that you could trigger them and smoke them. Now, I'm telling you what, when we discovered that you could uh, have a moist pork chop that's smoked on a Traeger, and this isn't a Traeger commercial, but it was, there's no going back. (laughs) You've now tasted that pork chops are really, really good. And they're juicy and flavorful, and wow, I could have some more of that. In fact, sometimes our kids get confused, they think it's steak. You know you've done it right then. But once you've learned a little bit, this can, you can think of this in every area, once you've tasted, and once you've known, and once you've seen, and once you've delighted in it, it do you agree? It's, it's hard to go back, isn't it? And you start longing for and wanting that better stuff. I mean, you know, you have some really good high-end wine, and two buck chuck's hard to come back to. Most of us have to because of our budgets, but we know what it's like to taste something good and to long for it and want more of it. And and the psalmist here that's what he's expressing. He's describing one, we don't know exactly who the person is, whether the author is David or someone else, but uh, it very well could be David. But he's one who's clearly tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's describing the one who, he says, how lovely, in verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Notice here that the psalmist is longing for God's house. He's obviously apart from God in some way. We know that he says... How he talks about his dwelling place, how lovely it is. It's so desirous is his temple, the temple courts, that he feels he's going to faint for want. He says, my soul, yeah, it faints. What does it faint for? It says in verse 2, it faints for the courts of the Lord. But not just the courts of the Lord. It isn't simply the tabernacle, the temple. Oh, the temple is beautiful. And my soul faints for the court, uh, is fainting for the courts. But most importantly, it's because of who is there. At the end of verse 2, he says, My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's because this is God's house. This is where God dwells. And this is encapsulated in that, that second part of verse 2, where the, it's the grand climax. It's because the living God is there. And then he goes on to say how blessed it is to dwell in God's house. I As mean, a matter of fact, it's so blessed that he envies the swallow. Look at verse 3. And now he's talking about, the almost grumbling in a sense, well, even the swallow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Oh, the swallows. You guys know swall- swallows love to... You know, they're chirpy little birds that fly all over and they love to nest in nice little perches. And so you could just imagine the temple and the altar and and around there, there's lots of little perches. So there's lots of swallows there. And the psalmist is envying the swallow because it gets to stay there all the time. It has this nest there and the young there. And it's like, oh, man, if I could just be like the swallow. And then he moves on. In verse 5, and he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. The blessed person. Blessed is that person. And what's he saying here? Who makes their pilgrimage. Who makes their journey towards the temple. As they, he says in verse 6, As they go through the valley of Baca, which is the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The valley of Baca, they don't know exactly where this is ge- geographically but it's most likely a wilderness which, and a desert. And it's a, they call it a valley of weeping probably for a good reason because it's, it's so parched, it's so dry, it's, it's so barren, it's so difficult to pass through that it almost brings upon weeping. They don't know exactly why, but it makes sense. He says in this valley, he says that somebody who has to pass through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, to get there, he says the journey is so joyous that they turn even that valley into a pool. Make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. And it's interesting, is normally when you go through a a barren wilderness, a desert, what do you do? You you get thirstier and thirstier. More tired and more tired. More weary and more weary. But what does he say this person does? Verse 7. They don't do that, do they? He says, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And why do they go from strength to strength? Because they're so excited. They get, each step, they're closer. And as they get closer, they're more excited. He says, this is what happens when you have absolute joy and delight in getting to your destination. Even the valleys, the dark valleys, are not nearly as bad when your eyes are set on your destination. And then he, this glorious summary is given. There's a little interlude in verse 8 to 9. O Lord of God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. He's asking, this is where it's a good hint that it's probably David writing this psalm because the anointed, David is the anointed of the Lord, the king. He cries out to God, because this is the the grand climax, 10 and following. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. God's presence in God's house is so good that just one day in the outer courts, in the outer courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. And if the outer courts are that good, how much better would be the inner sanctuary? He's just saying, just get me to the outer courts even, to the fringes. And I would rather spend a day in those outer courts than a thousand anywhere else. Why would he say that? It's because God is so good. He's such a delight to his soul. There's nothing in this world that can compare to it. You know, you think of all the lovely places in the world. All the delightful places that you could vacation. If I said, where would you like to go if you could go right now? If you go anywhere in the world, where would you choose? And perhaps this time of year, you're thinking somewhere hot. You're thinking, you know, some beach somewhere. Hawaii. Fiji. (laughs) The Bahamas. Maybe that's where your mind goes. And why is that? Your mind goes there, and what do you think? You think of its beauty you think of its rest, you think of its enjoyment, you think of its refreshment, you think of its delight, you think of the waves lapping up on the sand, and you think think of the palm trees and the breeze and its cocktails and the smells, and all of this stuff gets you excited. And if you were planning a trip, half the fun is the anticipation. But he says, the psalmist is saying, I would rather be in the courts of my Lord than anywhere else. Anywhere else. And why would he say that? He's not saying that because he's so stoic. Oh, that's the thing to say. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, godly people, we're supposed to be in church. No. It's because he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And he's dissatisfied with anything else but his presence. He knows how good it is. He knows how great it is. You know, he goes on to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So he's given an analogy saying, I'd rather be at the door. I'd rather not even be allowed in. I'm not allowed in, but I'm just on the outside edges. I'm at the door and everybody's in there having a great time and enjoying themselves. I would rather be there then dwell in the midst, in the middle, in the tent of the wicked and what they're doing. And why? Often we think, well, the wicked have so much fun and we have such drab time. He's saying, "No, no, the Lord is good. He's so good. His dwelling place is unbelievable. And again, he goes on to say, this is why. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed or happy, happy is the one who trusts in you. There's no greater blessing in all of life than the Lord. Delighting in, enjoying him, feasting on him is the absolute best. But he goes on to say also that this is for those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So this blessing is only realized by those who walk uprightly. But I want to spend some time understanding that phrase and what that means, to be upright. Because no one who walks uprightly before God ever gets that way without first being brought low by God. It's a little, there's an irony, there's an ironic twist here, actually, that can be very misunderstood by, the, by the, the surface of the comment. He lifts up and gives grace to those who are humbled, but he brings low those who are proud. Here's the thing, if we hunger for God, we have to walk in humility. And the reason for this is because blessing, the blessing of God's presence as described here is only given to the upright. And the way to stay up is to go down. It's easy to misunderstand this whole idea of walking uprightly. We can think that it means that God is delighted with those who have their lives neat and tidy and all together. So we go on trying to get our lives all together. We can think in our minds, when you hear the word upright, what do you think of? That's often th- that where our minds go. Or we can think that those who are, who are upright are those who never really do anything wrong. They're upstanding citizens. That's what we call someone who's just polished. They spend their days perhaps in prayer and doing church activity and making sure everything's just right and just in order. And these ideas of uprightness, a, of, a of just an outward appearance, of, a, of making sure your life on the outside, everything's neat and tidy and in order and in place, and you do all the religious activity, and you come here on Sunday morning and you pray and you fast and you do all the things that you're supposed to do, yet this is what you do on the outside. If we think that is uprightly, then we're misunderstanding what is being said here. Because that is exactly how the Pharisees thought of what it meant. When they read the scriptures and they read words like the righteous ones and those who are upright, they think in the wrong direction. Because listen to what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite is someone who's something on the outside, but not the same person on the inside. The outside and the inside aren't matching. The way we are in private is not the way we are in public. That's hypocrisy. He says, you gather a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He's calling him a hypocrite, every single phrase and statement he makes. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And yet, when a sinner repented, that was a mistake. (laughs) I started reading the next uh, section. But inside they're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So we can see that the Pharisees, on the outside, who were they? They were the religious elite who had it all together. If you were to ask any question, just take a microphone in those days and go around the people and say, could you tell me who the upright are in this community? Who would you say they are? Oh, the Pharisees. Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. Really? Jesus wouldn't say that. They're not upright at all. They're in the, in the, on the outside, they appear one way, but on the inside, they're different creatures. They're, they're hypocritical. And how easy easy is it for us to be hypocritical, to uh, try to appear upright, to give the presentation to us all that, hey, look at me, I'm upstanding, everything's great. But it's not the truth of what's truly going on inside. It's definitely clear that Jesus doesn't think too much of those who try to put on the upright image. But Luke 15 says, he gives it a, Jesus speaks about what he thinks about true humility. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, near to, drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, well, guess what they did? They grumbled. They did not like this. they saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who is it that Jesus lifts up? The repentant. These are the ones who are upright because they've been brought upright. This is what we saw in scripture last week as we walked through some of those passages about humility. It was the humble who God lifts up. The humble person is convinced that they are nothing apart from the Lord. That everything they have is what God has given them. Even their holiness is even their good deeds, even their uprightness, all things. They know that I stand upright right now, not by my own strength, not by my power, but by the grace of God fully. In me there is no good thing, but all good that I have is from the Lord. It's the gift of God. He's he's given it to me in Christ Jesus. And so the heart of the humble is one who sees themselves clearly, the heart, and is exposed. And they look at the heart and they understand who they are and what's going on. And the upright is one who's brought low. And they're only upright because the Lord has lifted them upright. Now once we get upright, it doesn't mean now that we stay upright, now we have to try to protect the upright image. And we try to put it on and make sure everything's upright and everything's upstanding on the outside. And then we feel the inside crumbling because over time that's the Christian pressure. We start to put everything upright on the outside and everything's falling apart on the inside. And we become a hypocrite. And in God's eyes we're no longer upright because we're no longer brought low. We don't just get upright one day and stand there. We must walk in humility that the Lord would continue to lift us up. A humble person is like an infant. You notice an infant? You know what do you notice about an infant is how incredibly dependent they are. For everything. You know, all, you know what one thing an infant can do? Is cry out. It can't eat. It can't drink. It can't wipe itself. It can't go to the bathroom. It can't do anything. But one thing God gave it is a cry. It cries out, and you think, "Okay, it's it's okay. The, is the diaper wet? Are, you know, have they eaten? Are they tired? You know, it's you just you're trying to eliminate, and you you examine, you find it out, and you take care of it. But they only have a cry; they just cry out. It's just an utter picture of dependence and humility. They have nothing, and if you left them alone, they would die. And that's what a person who comes in humility to God is—one who understands that I have nothing." Nothing on my own. In fact, on my own, I die. Apart from God, I am dead. I don't have anything. Let me repeat, anything. If you see any good thing, it's of God. If he didn't give it to me, I wouldn't have it. If he wasn't working in me, it wouldn't be coming out. It's all him. And so the posture of the humble is one who cries out to him for strength, for help, for protection, for wisdom, for deliverance, for everything that is needed, and understands that, you know, God, this is a confession. Father, I am weak, and you know I'm weak. You know I'm frail. You know how I... how I how I struggle in this particular area and this area. You know how I have this issue or that issue. You know, Father, I I can't go and try to impress you. I can't go try to, you know, I'm going to prove to you tomorrow. I'm going to do better today and come back and I'm going to show to you that I am upright. He's just going to let you fall and fall. And you wonder, why can I ever deal with this? I just keep on. I want so bad to, to do better. I want so bad to be upright in God's image, and it feels like a righteous zeal. I have a zeal for righteousness. Well, then you better have a zeal for humility before God and a brokenness, because if you say, Father, I am weak, you know I'm weak, and I need your strength, I need your protection, I need your help, I need you. Well, he's pleased to lift you up. He's pleased to give you what you need. But it's that dependent heart that cries out to him. And, and, and we got to live there. Every morning when you wake up, do you think you've got this day covered on your own strength? Do you keep on trying to do it one more time? The best confession you can make early in the morning is, I can't. Oh, Lord God, apart from you, I, I can't do anything. So I look to you, cry like a little infant. I cry to you. You are my strength. You are my help. You are my rock. You are everything. And apart from you, it can do nothing. You know that God loves that confession. He loves that broken humility. And that's what he lifts up and and props upright. And those ones, and then they experience the grace of God, and they grow to delight in that grace. You know, I just want to conclude with one last thing about this particular section. It's not revealed in the text. But it's, it's there now that we realize and understand. There's something that the psalmist didn't even know that we know. And it's Jesus. Jesus is a difference maker. And this is why if we hunger for God, we will delight in Jesus. Something drastically changed when Jesus, with the coming of Jesus, which gives something the psalmist couldn't even fully understand. And as much as the psalmist enjoyed God, you notice how the psalmist always knew he he was running and delighting and seeking after the temple. And why? Because that was God's house. That's where God dwelt. But no matter how great or how beautiful the temple was, no matter how marvelous the experience of God's presence in the temple, it was nothing, nothing compared to what God was going to do in Christ. Because in Christ, a new temple was made where God would dwell. And that temple is his body, the church. So if the psalmist was longing to dwell in the temple because that is where God was at the time, how much more should we long to be together because this is where Christ dwells? The Spirit has now come and dwelt among the body of Christ. Now we are the most blessed of all people. So when two or three are gathered in his name, there is he in the midst. However, there's a caveat. The blessing which Christ brought us, the blessing of being in Christ, is not often not realized in its fullness because of the sin that goes undealt with in our own hearts. As we began to uncover this weekend, when we take a a searching look at our hearts and we look, there is more in there than we like to admit. But, as we just finished talking about, if we humble ourselves, confess our sins, and repent, God is pleased to heal us and to fill us with his presence. So the promise to us in Christ is not just carte blanche. Here it is, boom, promise. Two or three gathered and you just are going to have a party. It's going to be everything described in Psalm 84 and more. It's going to be unreal as God's presence is there. Because there's something on our part that's necessary. We're always called throughout Scripture, always called to repent and believe. We're always called to humble ourselves so we will be lifted up. So when we don't experience and know God's presence and power among us, you know what we should be doing? We should be searching our hearts. We should be looking say, oh, Lord, God, is there something? Why, oh, Lord? I long for your presence. I long for it. But you know what? Sometimes you're never going to long for it. You're never going to get really fired up about it. You're never really going to want it if you've never tasted it before. And sometimes it's like we've never tasted it. We've never tasted those good old pork chops you're talking about. I don't know what you're, t- what you're, what you're telling me. This, it's dry. It's, it's just the way it is. It's kind of what we do routine. But we taste and see, like the psalmist has, that the Lord is good. It's just we want more. I long for it. I delighted it. I want him in, in a big way. You know, I think we ought to be like Israel, who when they went into the promised land, And experienced that defeat at AI. Do you know the very first thing they did when that defeat happened? Tore their clothes threw ashes on their forehead. Bowed before God and cried out, Oh Lord God, what happened? Just Just a few guys died. No big deal. No, we lost. The Lord was not with us. His power is not amongst us. It was not as he had promised. And they were distraught. And then God revealed that someone had taken the forbidden things. So when they got rid of them and repented, God continued to do glorious things in their midst. Now, thankfully, we don't have to take, take anyone out and stone them, and, and uh, it's, it's of that level. That's great. All we have to do is take our idols. We have to turn from our sin. We have to confess our sins. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will lift us up. Because just as much as the psalmist was rejoicing in being God's house, we should be in lamentations and weeping if God is no longer in the house. Because the psalms aren't all equal. You'll find some psalms where they're crying out in desperation for God to come again. We know the history of Israel isn't all equal. There are times in Israel's history where you could have went to the house of God and God was nowhere to be found. And what was it always contingent upon? It was contingent upon God's people humbling themselves before him, confessing their sins, repenting and turning to him and seeking him. You know, my prayer for myself and for all of us here is that God would give us a taste And give us a deep hunger in our bellies. A deep hunger for Him. A deep hunger for His presence. A passion. My prayer, I've been praying for myself and for the congregation that God would disturb us in a really good way. He would bother us. I want us to become more and more bothered that He's not showing up in power amongst us. That His presence isn't here. That we're not... We're not coming here, running here to gather together as as much as we can. We want to gather together and know God's presence so that we could say it's better than life. I would A day here is better than a thousand anywhere else. Because once that hunger gets in you, and once it's in your belly, and once you start hungering for it and delighting for it and longing for it, well, then what's going to happen is you just... You're going to start crying out to God. You're going to start searching your heart. You're going to start repenting. And you're going to start walking and living in that humility. And God is going to lift you up. God is going to meet us. But as long as we're complacent, as long as we're indifferent, as long as we're ice cold, as long as we wander along, as long as we're yawning and just carrying on, as long as we're doing our own little thing, as long as we're convinced that we're walking uprightly, as long as everything's good, as long as we just carry on, this is the way it is, folks. It'll never happen. It'll just get colder, icier, deader, and uglier. But the good news is God delights to be amongst his people. And when he is you will taste and see that the Lord is so good that you would rather spend a day here than a thousand elsewhere. And to that we pray. Amen. Father, oh Father, please, please grant us a hunger and a thirst for you, that we would hunger and thirst after you like a parched man who's not seen water in days. Oh, Father, would you in Christ Jesus be merciful and disturb us and bother us and stir us and cultivate in us a hunger and a thirst for you, O oh God, that we truly would seek after you and want nothing more than you. We would delight in you and our hearts would be filled to overflowing as we do. We experience your presence. O Lord God, have mercy on us and bless us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.